Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. In December of 2006, atheist Brian Sapien and Rook Hawkins issued a blasphemy challenge on YouTube. I remember it. I remember it. It was a challenge for people to go on YouTube and to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and to commit the unpardonable sin. It was a way for them to demonstrate that they did not believe in God, but maybe even more specifically to show that they they weren't scared of not being, of having God's forgiveness or anything else in the Bible. Renowned atheist uh, Christopher Hitchens participated in it, Ben, ben Gillette took part in it. Uh, I think there were, at the end, maybe over a thousand people that uplifted a YouTube that basically where they, they said, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Here's one example from a, a fellow named Joel. He said, my name is Joel. I deny the Holy Spirit as well as God, Jesus, Buddha, Zeus, Mohammed, Joseph Smith, SpongeBob, the Pope, Santa Claus, Mother Mary, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, Optimus Prime, and all the saints and Spider-Man. Did these folks uh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Did they commit the unpardonable sin? And in part, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Last week, if you were with us, we're, we're in a study of the Gospel of Mark, which is a biography of Jesus. And last week, we saw three groups of people. Let me just refresh our minds. We saw three groups of people. If you remember, we saw the crowd, and we saw the committed, and we saw the emerging leaders. And I challenged us last week to move from the crowd to the committed. I, I asked us to move from the crowd that just basically were fans of Jesus to be part of the committed group of folks who followed the Lord Jesus. And then I, I asked, especially amongst you young men and women in our church that have been gifted and called by God to rise up and lead us in the days ahead. I made the statement that the health of our church and the flourishing of our church depended not on who the primary leader was, or I would say not even, not even the elders, although there's great responsibility there. I would say the health of any local church lies in young men and women rising up to lead us. And whatever, whatever God's gifted you and however God's called you, if you're a leader, you need to do that. Don't be lazy and don't be afraid of sacrifice. Step up and lead us in the years to come. So I called all of us to that last week. This morning, I want to back up two verses in our study of Mark. I want to go back to verse 20. I went to verse 21 last week, but really I need to back up to verse 20. And this morning, we're going to look at a story within a story. We're going to look at both of these stories. The first story is about uh, Jesus' family deciding that they need to do something about him. And so we read these verses last week, verse 20. Then he went, this is Mark chapter 3, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. However, evidently on the way there, for whatever reason, Mark interjects another story in between them going out to confront Jesus and actually arriving there. And there's another story kind of sandwiched right in between the beginning and the end of that first story. We're going to come back to that second story in a minute. I want to finish this first story of Jesus' family coming for him. 
So Mark interjects his story in verses 22 to 30. We're going to skip over that and jump to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside the house where Jesus was, they, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. We mentioned this last week, but his family feels like he's out of his mind. I'm not sure why they thought that, but uh, I want to tell you that I honestly don't believe this means Mary. Even though Mary is included in this group, as we'll see in just a moment, I don't believe this is Mary. I think Mary is, is and I'm speculating here, I grant you this, this is Jimmy's speculation and reasoning, but I, I don't think Mary is included in this because Mary has asked Jesus to do the first miracle that he ever did, which was the creating of the water, turning the water into wine. She was there for his, con his immaculate conception, not her immaculate conception, his immaculate conception. When, when the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary, she was there. She knew she'd never been with a man. She saw all of that. When Jesus was born, she saw the shepherds come from the field, saying, we've seen the angels. She saw the Magi, and the Bible says she treasured all of these things in her heart. So I don't think Mary, I don't think Mary was there. I don't think Mary was running interference between her other sons and Jesus. That's what I think, okay? But her brothers, on the other hand, obviously do think Jesus is mad. And they want to, they want to rein him in. It, it doesn't tell us any more about it than that. Here's again, Jimmy's speculation. I think they're thinking Jesus is an embarrassment to their family. Either that or they're afraid Jesus is going to cause their family problems with Rome or maybe with the Jewish leadership. But uh, I think her brother, his brothers are the ones that are basically trying to come and stop him. When they get there, it's just like with the story of the paralytics. There's so many people at the house, they can't get to Jesus. So I kind of picture them at the back of the crowd saying, hey, hey, would you tell them up there that his mother and brothers are here? And they just kind of like a telephone pass it all the way to the front until the word gets to Jesus that your mother and your brothers are outside. So let's look at verse 33. He answered them once the word got to him that, uh, that his mother and brothers were outside seeking him. Verse 33, he answered those who told him, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus takes this opportunity to teach us a really important lesson. I want you to listen. Here's the lesson. Those who do the will of God are truly the family of God. They're, they're truly our ultimate family. Jesus asks rhetorically, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he answers by pointing to the people around him. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us that he specifically pointed to his disciples and said, these are my brothers and my mother. And then he even went further and he said, everyone who does the will of God, they are my mother and my sister and my, my brothers. So contrary to what some people say, some people say Jesus is dissing his family. He's disrespecting them. He's dismissing his mother and his brothers, that he's actually dismissing the biological family. And they point to things like, hey, Jesus never married. Never had any children. Jesus, when a guy came to him and said, hey, let me bury my father first and then I'll come and follow you. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. Or how about this one? He who does not hate his father and mother cannot be my disciple. So people point to those things and they say, Jesus is dissing the, the immediate family. He doesn't care about the family. And all of those indictments, in my opinion anyway, um, are, 
they're out of context, right? They're not, they're, they're not given to us in, in context. But, but, Jesus, and, but Jesus isn't disrespecting the family, but here I want to tell you something. He is changing things. He is changing things. Charles Moore writes, Contrary to the tradition that salvation is guaranteed by ancestry or that one's highest social obligation is to family, he reminds his listeners that the covenant that first drew God's people together was based not on bloodlines, but on faith in the miraculous power of God. In other words, you're not saved. You're not made right with God because you're Jewish. You're not made right with God because you have a certain bloodline. He said, you, you are made right by God, or with God, by the blood of Jesus. And you know, the blood of Jesus, if you're not familiar with what we mean by that, the Bible speaks of the blood of Jesus a lot. And what it means is, Jesus shed his blood on the cross. He died for us. He gave his life for us. And, and so, in other words, we're not saved by being Jewish or being of any other heritage. We're saved because Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus is redefining family, everyone. He, he is creating a radically new social order, a welcoming, open community, not forged by heritage or ancestry, but by repentance and discipleship. He's actually creating this, this new social order of family, the family of God. As Rodney Platt put it like this, it is through a new family, born again of the Spirit, that God's kingdom breaks into the world. So he's inaugurating this new family of God, a family of disciples who follow him with their whole lives. It's a family that welcomes widows and orphans. What do widows and orphans have in common? You know, they don't have family anymore. Slaves and freemen, Jews and Gentiles. The church, therefore, isn't just a bunch of families that come together on a Sunday. The church is family. The church. Thank you. The church is family. This is my favorite metaphor for the church. Now, those of you who know me all these years, you, you know it's got to be true, because this is how I talk about the church. We are family. And so here's what John says in his gospel. He says, when you come to Jesus, you become part of the family. To all who received him, Jesus, received Jesus. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Or here's Paul to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, And because of Jesus, all of us can come to the Father by the same Spirit. Now you who are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are members of God's own family, citizens of God's country, and you belong to God's household with every other Christian. Or to the church of Galatia, Paul writes this, So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. So what he's saying is this, that there is a family bond that is stronger even than the biological bond that we share with our biological family. We are truly family in Jesus you know, I got, I got two of my daughters here. My son-in-law's here. My granddaughter's in the nursery. I'm assuming that's where she is. She's in the nursery. And uh, man, I want to tell you something. We were talking last night. I, we have a strong fam, biological family bond. We have a super strong bond. But you know the bond that we share is the body of Christ. 
It's supposed to be deeper. It's supposed to be stronger. It's supposed to be even better than that bond. So what does this mean uh, practically? Here's what it means. It means we care for each other. It means we love one another. It means we invest in each other's lives. It means we encourage one another. It means we lay down our lives for each other. We support one another. And like all families, we're, we're, we're made up of broken people. So you know what that means? We're going to hurt each other down the road. We're going to mess up. We're going to say things that are hurtful. We're going to do things that are hurtful. Sometimes we may even mean them. Most of the time we don't mean them, I don't think. But sometimes we may even mean them. So we're going to mess up. So you know what it means? It means as a family, we forgive one another. We're willing to absorb hurt and forgive each other. And and, and here's something else it means. It means we confess our wrong to others when we've messed up. So hopefully in my biological family with my with my children and my grandchildren, I I hope that we'll always be willing to own our mistakes and own our sins and own the things where we've messed up, you know, and that's how it needs to be here in our family, in the family of God. We need to own our mistakes with what, that's what it means to be family. John wrote in in his third letter, the fourth verse, John the Apostle wrote, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. And, and, and again, I know he's talking about disciples there, but you know, the whole, there's no greater joy than to hear that we are family walking in truth. There's no greater joy than that. And the story is left open-ended. Did you see that? What did Jesus do next? Did he go out and greet his, did he go out and greet his mom and dad? I mean, mom and dad, his mom and brothers? Did he go out and greet them? You know, it doesn't tell us because the point is this, the church is to be family. That's the point. And that's why we don't have an, it's an, it's an open-ended story. We don't know what happens next because the point's been made. We are to be family. Prioritize the family of God even as you prioritize your biological family. We have strong families in our church that I'm so grateful for. You prioritize your children. You prioritize your families. And that's awesome. But you know, we need to prioritize this family too. You know, I told you last week, I'm going to say it again. Do not make Jesus... A, a rabbit's foot that you, you hang on the side of your belt. Jesus is not a rabbit's foot for us. Jesus is life. Jesus is the center of everything we are. But I'm telling you something, the church needs to be that too. Don't make the church an appendage to your life. Don't, don't make the body just be an, an amulet for the other side, right? I got Jesus on this side. I got the church on this side. I'm all wrong. I'm well covered. No. Make, make the church, your family, make it core. Make it center. Now let's turn our attention to the second story. The story of the story. So in between Jesus' family coming and Jesus making this huge point, we have another story. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons who cast out the demons. So evidently, the word of what Jesus is, is doing has reached Jerusalem. And so they, they have sent people up to where Jesus is in Galilee to investigate what's going on there. If you've been watching The Chosen, I mean, they make a big deal about this particular point that Jerusalem is investigating Jesus, right? That's kind of all woven through the first two seasons of, of The Chosen. So they, they send these leaders up to investigate, 
And when they get there, they, they see Jesus casting out demons. They see him healing people and healing in ways that are not possible for ordinary man. And uh, Thinkery's been around forever. I would say Simon the, the sorcerer in, uh, in Acts chapter 8, I would imagine, I'm guessing, I mean, he could have been doing his stuff through the power of Satan, but I imagine he's using trickery. When I was young, there was a fellow by the name of Peter Popoff. I don't think I, I forget everybody's, I forget names, right? But I don't think I'll forget Peter Popoff's name because that name is just so distinctive, whatever. But he was a, he was a faith healer. And so Sluice took out to, uh, to expose him. They took a radio scanner to one of his revival services. And what they found is they picked up all these plants within the people. People were coming into the meeting. People would be saying, hey, what's your name? What you here for? That kind of thing. They would pass the information on to his wife via these things in the ear. And then the wife would pass it on to Mr. Popoff. And then he would stand up front and act like God was speaking to him. And so he was proved to be a faker. There's been all kinds of fakers throughout, throughout the generations, I'm sure. But one thing was clear. Jesus wasn't a faker. In other words, he could not fake what he was doing. So that only left two possibilities. Jesus did what he did by the power of God, or he did it by the power of God. Satan or the power of the adversary. Now, since these religious leaders refused to see God at work, they refused Jesus and they made two statements about him. They said they accused him of being possessed by Beelzebul and they accused him of driving out the demons that Jesus would drive out of people. They accused him of driving them out by the power of, uh, of Beelzebul, by the power of these of uh, of demons. So this is kind of humorous. I want to teach you something that I didn't know, so I imagine most of you might not know this either. But Beelzebub, Beelzebub was the Canaanite god worshipped in Ekron. Beelzebub, his name means, and Chris, you talk about this in Sunday school, that Baal means uh, Lord. Beelzebub meant Lord, and they, the etymology of the word, they're not exactly sure, but they think it meant Lord of the high places. So Beelzebub, the god they worshipped in Ekron, he was the, the god in the high places, of the high places. And he came to eventually represent the god of all the demons. So Beelzebub was the god of all the demons. He was the Lord of the high places. Well, the Jews wanted to ridicule him, and so they changed his name to Beelzebul where Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. You know those little insects that go get on despicable stuff everywhere, right? So they, they made fun of Beelzebub by, by calling him Beelzebul. And uh, so they're saying Jesus is casting out demons um, not by the power of God, not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but there he's casting them out by Beelzebul, this despicable Lord of the flies, this Lord of the demons. Now Jesus doesn't let their folly go and answer. He's going to answer them. So he calls them to himself. And uh, let's pick up. He, he, tell, he shares with them two parables in answer to their two accusations. First he says to them, your conclusion is illogical. So verse 23. He called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan, the word Satan means adversary, 
And it simply means the word adversary kind of came to be a name as well, representing a, a person who was an adversary. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So if Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, Jesus says that is illogical. It's not logical. Satan will be fighting against himself. Like a military unit, if it's firing on itself, I mean, it's, you know, if the Russians begin to fire on themselves, I mean, they're going to lose the war that much quicker. Or Ukraine. Either way, you, you, don't, you don't fire on yourselves. It, it, we all know this. This is true. It's been true throughout the centuries that a family that's divided won't stand. A country that is divided, a kingdom, a government that is divided, it cannot stand. It will, it will fall. It will fail. And throughout history, history is littered with evidence of this logical common sense parable that something divided against itself will not last. Jesus says if Satan is fighting against Satan, his kingdom is falling. It's about to fall. But the obvious, the obvious and implied response is that Satan isn't casting out Satan, right? He would never do that. It's the power of God that is casting out Satan. Is, is casting out Satan here, is casting out these demons. You know, uh, such a lesson, you know, the world has to learn this. We have to learn this. Our church needs to always remember this, right? Divided, we will fall, you know? So that brings us to the second parable, and it's, it's real, the second parable is to make this statement. He says, your conclusion is illogical because your premise is wrong. And his premise, their premise was that Jesus was doing what he was doing, being possessed by Beelzebul. He's, he's doing it, being possessed by the power of, uh, of this prince of demons, this high demon. And uh, Jesus says, it's not how it is at all. I am not possessed by Satan. I have bound him. So in verse 27, Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed, and then indeed he may plunder his house. And in this parable, make no mistake, Satan is the strong man. And we should also make no mistake in this way either, that Satan is a powerful spiritual being who turned malevolent, right? And he's a strong, powerful being. He's not God. He's created by God. His power doesn't rival God in any way, but as far as his power, his power is so much greater than ours. You can't just walk up to him and plunder his kingdom. So Jesus says here, uh, I could not be robbing Satan's house. I could not be casting out demons unless I had overpowered Satan. So Jesus is claiming here that in some way he has dispossessed Satan. In some way, he has bound Satan. In some way, Satan is being overpowered by Jesus. Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. You know, as I was working on this message, that, that little song we sing, uh, it has the line that sings it over and over, Jesus is stronger, my sin is strong, Jesus is stronger. You know, that song came to mind because I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Satan is strong, but I'm stronger. And I have bound him. 
And then Jesus says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. Whatever blasphemies they will utter, but whatever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Because they were saying, he has an unclean uh, spirit. So there it is. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What did Jesus mean by that? And over the centuries, Christians have really put forth four ideas as, as to what Jesus meant. Now, at least it's not very clear, right? So Christians have disagreed. They suggested four things, and, and I'm going to share them with you, and I'm going to tell you, I really think only one of them is viable. I think only one of them really stands out amongst the others, and, and we'll see that in just a moment. But before we look at those, let me just say Jesus is juxtaposing this against every other sin and every other blasphemy. He says, hey, all every, every other sin can be forgiven except for this, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And to blasphemy is to speak with disdain or derision against God, and listen to this, or to be defiantly disrespectful. So to speak with disdain and to defy the Holy Spirit is what is what Jesus is saying won't be forgiven. So let's look at the four views. The first view is kind of popular um, in a, amongst a lot of Christians, but um, you know I, I think it's the least likely. And this is that most sins are forgivable, but especially bad sins. In other words, when Jesus said blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what he meant was there was a group of sins that were so terrible that if you committed those sins, you wouldn't be forgiven those. So, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to commit these really super bad sins. And usually named amongst them were adultery, murder, denying Christ, uh, when you're being persecuted. And my kids, last night we were all sitting around talking about this, and my kids said, you know, that suicide is, you know, a lot of people think suicide is the unforgivable sin, right? That it's one of those most heinous sins that would fall into this category. I'm only going to mention this. Let me tell you why. Because it doesn't fit the context at all. It doesn't fit the... See, context is everything in understanding truth, guys. When we're reading our Bibles and trying to figure out what Jesus says, context matters most. And this doesn't fit the context at all of what's going on or what Jesus is, is trying to say. And, and it doesn't fit what the whole, the whole of the New Testament teaches or the Old Testament. For instance... The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And it doesn't put a caveat, caveat out there, except for these particular sins. These are unforgivable sins. And we have the example of King David, the adulterer, being forgiven. We have Paul, the murderer, being forgiven. We have Peter, the denier, being forgiven. And um, you don't know if we have an example of a suicide person being forgiven, but... Um, these are just all misunderstandings of what it means. That the only way to believe that committing a certain sin is somehow unpardonable is to misunderstand the gospel. It's to misunderstand the good news. So here's the good news, everybody. The good news is that it's not that I don't sin. The good news is that I'm in Jesus. And being in Jesus, he bore my sin. So if I'm in Jesus, and, and I have maybe depression has overtaken me, and, you know, people who commit suicide, most of them are struggling with supreme depression, you know. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin any more than adultery or murder or any other sin. To be in Jesus is to be forgiven of our sins. So this, this first view, I think, is wrong. The second, another view 
asserts this, that it's saying something wrong about the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you say something wrong about Him, if you get something wrong about Him, then you've committed the unpardonable sin of the Holy Spirit. This was, believe it or not, this was you find this in the writings of a lot of the early church fathers. Here's an example from Cyril of Jerusalem. He says, and I quote, A man must often fear to say, either from ignorance or assumed reverence, what is improper about the Holy Spirit, and thereby come under this condemnation. Again, this view doesn't, doesn't fit the context. It's not what's happening. They're not talking about the Holy Spirit at all, right, in this particular situation. And, and furthermore, it, it, it doesn't fit the context, but it also doesn't fit what the Scripture teaches us. God, God's judgment is for our actions, not for our misunderstandings. You know, many non-Christians have expressed wrong views of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you something else. In the body of Christ, people who love Jesus and follow Jesus, they have two differing views on things on the Holy Spirit, right? So if, they, if one of them are committing, one set of the body of Christ is committing an unpardonable sin, if that's true, if this is the unpardonable sin, to get something wrong about the Holy Spirit. I think probably all of us have gotten things wrong about the Holy Spirit in the course of our life. So I, I you know, with all due respect to our early church fathers, I don't, think they, I don't think they got what Jesus was saying here. Right. The third view says that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to attribute miracles performed by the Holy Spirit to Satan. Now, this, is, this is definitely in the context of the day, right? Definitely in the context of the day. So this, this I think, it has more merit than the first two. The Pharisees are attributing the work of God's Spirit to Satan. Some people would say you can't repeat this today because the Holy Spirit was doing that through Jesus. The Holy Spirit was doing something special through Jesus and those miracles through the apostles. It can't be repeated, so therefore you cannot attribute to Satan what God was doing through Jesus. You can't repeat it anymore. Others would say, well, no, the exercise of the Holy Spirit, if, you would, if the Holy Spirit is doing something and you attribute that to Satan, then you've now committed the, uh, the unpardonable Sin. Y'all follow what I'm saying there? So some people say, well, you can't, you know, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit's not working like that anymore. So you, you can't commit the unpardonable sin because we don't live when Jesus and the apostles were living. Others would say, no, no, uh, the Holy Spirit, you can still, the Holy Spirit, you, you look at what the Holy Spirit might be doing in the miraculous realm today, and you might say, the well, Holy Spirit doesn't do that. You can deny that. So you're now committing the unforgivable sin because you're denying or you're blaspheming what the Holy Spirit is doing. So yes, you can commit that today. Again, this fits the context, okay? So we have to, we have to deal with it. But, but I, I don't think this captures what Jesus was getting at either. And uh, the reason I would say that is because the Bible tells us to judge the spirits. It tells me to judge the spirits, right? It's plausible for me in my fallen condition to seek to righteously judge the spirits, I think, and get it wrong. I don't think we're infallible. So I think we can, we can think we're right, we can make judgments and decisions and believe we're right and get it wrong. And, and so I, I just find it hard to, to think that this is what Jesus means when he says, you know, pardonable sin is to seek righteously to judge whether something's of God or not of God. If you get it wrong, you've now committed the unpardonable sin and you're lost forever. So I kind of don't, I, I don't think that was it. That brings me to the fourth view. And this is the one, of course, that, that I think is what uh, Jesus is getting at. 
The final view says that the unforgivable sin is to decisively and deliberately reject Jesus when the Holy Spirit is clearly revealing the truth to you of who he is. So hopefully you can catch that there is a, it's more than a nuanced difference. I think it's a pretty big difference between the one I just mentioned where you're trying to judge whether a, a miracle or something is the work of the Spirit. I'm saying that the unforgivable sin is deliberately and decisively rejecting Jesus when the Holy Spirit is clearly, without denying, revealing to you that Jesus is Lord. Um, this, is, this is different than what I just mentioned. Um, this is consciously hardening my heart to the Spirit's clear and convicting evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. So one of the reformers said this, and I quote him, those who commit the unpardonable sin do so with evil intention, resisting God's truth, although by its brightness they are so touched they cannot claim ignorance. In other words, the unpardonable sin is to purposefully harden your heart to the truth the Holy Spirit is convicting you with and revealing to you. You harden your heart. And in that day, and in that particular moment, it was them consciously, purposely hardening their heart to the miracles that they knew had to come only from God. They reject the clear, spirit-revealed truth that Jesus about Jesus, and they discard it and attribute the mighty works of the Spirit to Satan. They decisively reject Jesus because they refuse to repent. Instead of submitting to Jesus, recognizing the Spirit's empowerment of Jesus, the mighty works, they rebel against Jesus, and, and they claim it's by the power of this prince of demons. They're obviously it's not true. So the unpardonable sin, listen, it's not an accidental mistaken, impulsive, unguarded slip of the tongue. That's not what it is. It is a deliberate repudiation of the truth of Jesus that he, that God is clearly revealing to you. Now here's the question, hopefully you're tracking with me. I want to ask you if you are. Hopefully you're tracking with me. Here's the question that comes out of that. If someone rejects the clear work of the Spirit, the clear work of the Spirit, I mean, he's working and he's, he's in your heart and he's convincing you, and you reject that. You choose to reject it. Here's the question. Does God then seal that person in that rejection and that unforgiveness forever? You get it? You see what I'm asking? Because Jesus calls this the unpardonable sin and he, um, he says it's an eternal sin. So does God seal them in that rejection? Or is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit unforgivable? Because as long as you stay in that condition, you will always walk in unrepentance and unforgiveness. You see the two, see the two thoughts there? If you, could, if you reject the work of the Spirit in your life, does God then seal you in that rejection? Or... Or is it as long as you're walking in that rejection, as long as you are choosing to reject the Lord, then, then you will be sealed in that unforgiveness and you will be lost. You will rise to judgment only to be cast into the lake of fire to die the second death, which the Bible calls eternal. So uh, a couple of logical conclusions that I've made that I want to share with you. From, if, if this fourth view is the correct one, I believe it is, 
But like I said, others have disagreed. But I, I got three conclusions that I want to give you if the fourth one is true. Here's the first conclusion. Unbelievers are at the most at most at danger of committing the unforgivable sin. Unbelievers are. Because if the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to your heart clearly, and if you consciously keep rejecting him, you are committing the one unforgivable sin, and you are in danger of being sealed in that unforgiveness. One way or the other. Either, either you're sealing yourself in it, or God seals you in it, either way. But unbelievers are most at danger of committing the unforgivable sin. Number two, apostates are also in danger of committing this uh, sin. An apostate is a person who once claimed to be a Christian, but has now abandoned or renounced Jesus. I know quite a few people like this, believe it or not. And I think you probably all know of, of other folks in the media and stuff. I mean, I know personally, I know several folks who are in this position. You know, the scripture, here's what the scripture says about apostasy in Hebrews 6. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why is it impossible to restore them again to repentance? Is it because God has now sealed them in, in, this, in this rejection of the work of the Spirit? Or, or is it that that it is impossible to renew them because they continue to harden their own hearts, you know? Which, which is it? And I have someone I love dearly. And I pray that, that God will break through this. I pray that it's not that God's sealing, or that if it is God's sealing, that God might have mercy. Apostates are also in danger of committing this sin. This, this I think, is the Pharisees, right? They, they're turning away on purpose from God. I mean, they, they have known Yahweh. They know of Yahweh. They've been following Now they're turning away from Yahweh on purpose, decisively themselves. Here's the third um, logical conclusion that I drew anyway. If the fourth uh, view is correct, those who have committed an the unpardonable sin are not worried about it. They're not worried about it. They've been hardened in their unbelief. They don't, they don't care anymore, either by God or by themselves. They've hardened, their hearts have been hardened. So if you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, I, I don't know that I've met anyone who is really distressed by this. I don't know if I've committed the unpardonable sin or not. But, but if that were to be you, here, here's what I would say to you. If you're worried about it, chances are you haven't committed it. And if you are ashamed of your sin against God, you have not committed uh, the unpardonable sin. I don't know if any of you are feeling hopeless because you feel like you might have committed that sin. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And uh, if you do, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let me conclude. Jesus bound the strong man because he's the Son of God. He bound the strong man because he is stronger and his name is powerful. And because he bound the strong man, we have a family that loves us. We have a family to do life with. We have a family that will last forever. We have a family that is closer than blood. Because he bound the strong man, our faith rests in the Son of God, and we are forgiven. And because he bound the strong man, we have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope of eternal life, the hope of walking with God. And, and with each other. So here's my application to, here's my application request and desire. Uh, here, here's the challenge I put out to you this morning. It would be this, make a decision to love the family of God. Make a decision 
Now, don't let the church be an add-on like the ball, like rec ball, or whatever your hunting hobby, or whatever it is that, that brings pleasure and joy in your life. Don't make the church just another add-on to one of those things. Chris was talking about this in Sunday school. Chris, you know, just, just came to mind. He was talking about what, what, what seems to grieve the heart of God more than anything isn't that, this is what Chris said, I agreed with him, it's not, it's not that you replace, it's not that you replace God with another God, it's just that you lower God down to the same level with all the other gods. You know? And I, I think there might be some truth to that. And, and what I'm trying to say to you, I'm, I'm challenging you from Jesus' own words to love the family of God and to not make it another add-on to your life, just a, a, along with all these other things you do. Make the, make the family of God central in your life. No, the, third, the last thing was, the last implication would be this, make a decision to follow Jesus. Make a decision to follow Jesus. You know, I wondered, I wondered, man, is there anyone that maybe is hearing this, that the Spirit of God's been just prying on you, pushing on your heart, convicting you? I mean, quit, quit resisting. Follow Jesus. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Oh, 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 oh